Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. The podcast will start after a message from our sponsor. Many mothers find it hard to start working again. We started our online catering business for them. Through Grow with Google, we learn how to make our business stand out for free. Now in France, we've empowered more than 50 women to make a living from their cooking skills. We are Lubna and Donia of Meet My Mama. Two of the 725,000 Europeans so far who found a job or grown their business with Google's help. By 2020, we will support one million more. Grow with Google. To find out more, search new skills, new opportunities. Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. It's another summit week in Brussels, and it's crammed with migration drama, Trump, Eurozone, Brexit, and will Merkel stay or go drama. One man who could benefit greatly from Merkel going is Wolfgang Schäuble, her longtime rival and finance minister, now president of the Bundestag, the German parliament. He's our first interview. After Schäuble is Danny McCoy, the head of the Irish business lobby, IBEC. He talks Brexit and why Ireland has upped its lobbying game in Brussels. After that, the podcast panel tries to unpack why so much of what EU leaders are saying about migration is either unrealistic or not addressing some of the key problems. Now it's time to hear from Wolfgang Schäuble. I interviewed him at the College of Europe in Poland, where we discussed the future of Europe in front of this year's graduating class. President Schäuble, speaking of European unity, you've spoken of migration as the great challenge to democracy of our time. Uh, Europe has a common border. It has a shared space, at least among most of the member states. How can those survive without a shared policy? I think, in my reading, European integration started with opening borders. We had centuries of wars about borders, for example, between France and Germany, and so on. And as long as we disputed about borders, there was no stability and sometimes even not no peace. Therefore, not to dispute on borders, but open borders is the beginning of European integration. And therefore, if we, we have to preserve that Europe is a continent with open borders, that's the biggest achievement. And we did it. Of course, in this globalized world of the 21st century, whether you like it or not, the migration issue is one of the major challenges for global stability. And Europe is in a very specific way confronted with this situation. Of course, actually, we are concentrated on the problems with uh, the Mediterranean and, and the neighborship and so on. I have been Minister of Interior in Germany twice. First time it was from 1989 to 1991. And even in that time, we have a, a big debate in Germany on asylum and the right on asylum. And I fought 
three terrible years to amend our constitution to make our right for the asylum workable with global with the global solutions and the, uh, the Geneva Convention. It was a terrible debate. And in that time, we had every year 500,000 and more asylum seekers, not from the south, from the east. Actually, we have from the east, from the south. But others, mm-hmm. like Poland, have uh, external borders as well. Germany has no external border, actually, in, in Europe. Therefore, we are. That is my thing. If we want to prevent that we have open borders in Germany, uh, in, in Europe. We have to understand that the management and the protection, but I, am, I'm, I prefer to say management, because protection means we will not build walls around about Europe. No, we don't want walls. We have to save lives if people are in danger to, to uh, drunk in, in, in the Mediterranean and so on. But we have to fight criminal organizations, human trafficking. And of course, solidarity with all member states with external borders is a precondition for having that. And in this regard, if we take regard on the specific situation, and by the way, the specific burden of the past and the legacy of the history and so on and so on. Uh, People are much more willing to turn to European solutions or to ask for European support when they have a particular problem on an issue, but when you're doing well, when Germany does well, Germany wants to guard what it has, not share what it has. Poland does very well out of the cohesion funds okay, right yeah. now. You I, will I, attempt to guard I that it, as I much as possible. Yeah. Sorry, but I think partly that is human nature. If you are fine, you are always <laughs> you are always in the day to be complacent, and if you have problems, you are looking for someone, some other who is, can be taken as guilty. But having said this, as Germans, I'm an old man, you have mentioned it, it's fine. <laughs> I didn't mention it. <laughs> Look, I have, I, have, uh, I have been born in 1942. I grew up in the, in the Black Forest, it's in the neighborship to France. I'm my constituency, by the way, and I have been sometimes elected in this constituency, not too often, but it's in the neighborship of Strasbourg. I have very good memories what happened after World War II. And it was totally different. And therefore, when we traveled only for some kilometers about the border of, of, of the Rhine Valley, it was an adventure. And your generation, even if you travel to Hong Kong is nothing, or, or China is nothing, what is about uh, Galapagos Insula or so, somewhere uh, about, it's normal for you. The world is open. Europe is open. That is totally different. And we, the Germans, I know German history. The older I become, the more I have. And I do understand we Germans wouldn't have had our second chance, as it was named by the German-American historian Fritz Stern, mm-hmm. after World War II and after all what happened. Only without European integration, and Atlantic Partnership, with also respect, not to be forgotten, the European integration and Atlantic Partnership have been two sides of one coin. And we must even in these very days not forget. Without this, we wouldn't have so much. Therefore, and a stable Europe, a well-doing Europe, is the best, maybe the only precondition for a well-doing future for Germany. Therefore, it's not, an, it's not different things. And therefore, we try to stabilize Europe as much as we can. We know we have, by our geography, we are in the center of Europe. If 
the Swedes and the Spains would go for a war. They did it uh, 400 years ago. They have to do it in Germany. If Napoleon wanted to go to Russia, he did it 200 years ago, roundabout. By the way, it, it have been, he sacrificed more German lives than French lives he had sacrificed before already. And Polish, by the and way. And Polish, by the way, of course. We, Poland as well as Germany, we have the most interest in and well doing Europe. Mm. Because otherwise we have not to, and, 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 and by the way, in this globalized century, that is the migration issue with also respect as well. We will only remain relevant, relevant for ourselves, if we have a common voice. Look at the demography. In some years, or only today, we have, not, we have even not 10% of world population. In a globalized world of economy and financial markets, we have to safeguard the common market, which is in the interest of all. I think we have to stabilize our European currency in the Eurozone. But and if we become more efficient in these few regards, we will have much, we will earn much more confidence in public opinion. That is what we have to do pragmatically, efficiently. So lack of efficiency is by, it may be the most danger for the confidence that people have in the, we have to take a little bit more responsibility for our security ourselves. And that is what we can only do together. Alone, even France can't. Germany, impossible. Poland, impossible. Even Luxembourg <laughs> can't. <laughs> the problem of Luxembourg, Jean-Claude Juncker, once have said this, if Luxembourg would go to war with China, they wouldn't have enough room to take the prisoners they would make in China. <laughs> <laughs> That's more than the glass half full. Um, <laughs> this is on a completely different tangent now, but I hear often from people from the countries that joined in 2004 and later, yes, of course, benefits from the EU, but they don't always feel equal in the system, that no matter what they do, sometimes they're always treated like the new people, the new tenants in the like system. Children. Potentially like yeah, that. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. of course, Germany, you're bigger. It comes with certain rights and responsibilities, I suppose. What's your perspective of it being like around the council table or in the corridors of Berlin and Brussels? Do you feel that it is more of an equal relationship now? Have you used the weight of Germany in ways you regret in hindsight? Look, I have the, I made the experience in Germany itself because I have been Minister of Interior in Germany around about 1990. And of course, our new, and let's say in the, in, the, in the common parliament, after German reunification and so on, in government and in public discussions, whenever people from the former GDR made proposals, of course, our normal reaction has been, oh, yes, good idea. We have discussed it 30 years ago, 20 years ago. We have examined. We do it in this way and that way. Okay, thank you very much. Good question. But it's already, the problem is already solved. <laughs> And they felt treated themselves like children. That is what I have tried to say even to my colleagues, even in Germany, German politics, in Basel, if someone is listening to me, mostly not. Please avoid the situation that people which joined the European Union a little bit later than others feel themselves treated not as equal. We must not be so arrogant. We have our positions. Solidarity, for example, is, is of mutual interest. It's not a one-way track, but we can discuss what is the rule of law, 
the independence of, independence of justice and so on and so on. But we have always to do it not in a way which is seen by others as arrogant, but in a way equal level uh, and, and then open discussion and we will find solutions. That is what we have to do. Let's say, I have some friends which are members of European Parliament, personal friends. If they make, whether they make things good or not, if people in my constituency want to criticize the results of politics in Brussels, they don't ask the member of European Parliament, they don't know him. They aren't the member of national parliament, that is reality. And therefore, if you work in Brussels, for Brussels, for Europe, and they do so, please, have always in mind, you have not to see the, the reality in member states as people which are not as sophisticated as you. That is also to be misunderstood as arrogance. Let's say a process um, that might be regarded as one of your greatest controversies or one of your greatest achievements, the Greek bailout process. If it's not ended now, it's, it's kind of, there's a horizon, there's a, a way for, for exiting that process. Um, have you got any reflections nine and a half years into that process about uh, whether it's now on the right track? And have, has Europe done Greece justice in this process? Look, I have understood that economists have not been in favor of a common currency. And they have a lot of reasons for this. The decision for the common currency in, in, in Europe was a political decision. The European Monetary Union is, an, is a matter of fact. The dissolution of the monetary union and the European currency would cause a lot of frictions in the globalized economy, which no one can really imagine what will happen. It would be maybe something like uh, a disaster. I don't know. I would not take the risk. Having said this, we have to do what we can, and that's all we should be. And I think we have the, the Greek example is, is a good example. It's not done, you are right. But we are in a better situation than we used to be eight years ago. And therefore, you need someone who is as brutal as the same German finance minister to say, oh, we have rules. And in some way, you have to stick to the rules, otherwise we will destroy everything. On the other hand, we have, as there has never been a lack of solidarity to Greece. That's wrong. It's totally. Of course, political leaders in any member state are tempted if they have problems. And to solve the Greek economic problems, the lack of competitiveness is hard for any political leader. Good luck, I wouldn't do it in Germany. And of course you are saying, oh, if we don't, we will not get money from Brussels or from Germany with this stupid finance minister or whatever it is. Okay, you have to take the role, but it's wrong. It's wrong because you will not, you have to explain to your own constituency what are the very reasons. You have two alternatives. You can leave, then you will suffer a major disaster immediately. And then you will recover. From the day you, after you will recover. Slowly, but, but no one takes, likes to take this decision. The Greeks didn't. I bit the Italian. Italian will not take the decision. Therefore, we have to manage it, but they have to understand and we have to stick that there are some rules, otherwise we will destroy the monetary union. That was Wolfgang Schäuble. Next up, Danny McCoy. Danny McCoy, welcome to EU Confidential. Thank you very much, Ron. I guess what we better do is dive straight into Brexit. 
And the thing we've been told for months by negotiators on both sides was that June is going to be this really critical moment. The EU Leaders' Summit in the final week of the month was going to be this make-or-break point. And now we're being told, hang on, don't worry, we can just sort it all out in October. And I guess what I'm wondering, is there a moment in the calendar, a day in the calendar where you've marked out, you know, time to panic if we don't start to see the bones of a deal and, and something you can believe in when it comes to Brexit? I think the cliff edge still has to be a small probability, but I think at this point it is a small probability. The likelihood for business, and Irish business in particular, has been very concerned, given our geography and historical, social, political ties with Britain, that we will be facing such a hard scenario. I think there's a lot more confidence now that will be a lengthy transition, perhaps an indefinite transition, if you take it to its logical conclusion at the moment. So we know for certain on the good side, which is you know the transportation across the land bridge that is the island of Britain, that we've near certainty now until the end of 2020 and possibly with the backstop option even as far as 2021. That's a lot of time. Yeah, in effect, Brexit isn't really happening in 2019. We've not kicked the can down the road, but we have certainly moved the can down the road a couple of years, haven't we? In, indeed, that's, that's true for logistics. Uh, goods, however, are less than half of the exports of Ireland. And so around services, around the movement of people, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty for people in their own lives, you know, where to locate, what kind of relationships they will have between Ireland and Britain. So, you know, for business, it's not just about the goods. It's increasingly about the talent and the people as well. So more certainty would be important. And I think we're probably getting fatigue as well. You know, you can't stay in crisis mode for this length of time. Irish people have been worried about Brexit and IBEC in particular have been campaigning on it since 2014. Uh, it's, a, it's a large chunk of professional We life. have the same feeling here. Yeah. I can't tell you, we were sitting around the, the newsroom editorial table and there'd been some development earlier in the week and we all just rolled our eyes and went, again? Like, yeah. this is just so tiring that you feel you're in this endless loop where if it's not the exact same thing it, it's sure. a photocopy of what happened the week or the the month before absolutely and i think that's why the future of europe which encompasses the relationship with the united kingdom as well you know britain will be part of europe it won't be part of the institutions probably of europe so the future of europe in how we compete globally as an entity as an eu 27 unfortunately might be larger again but you know the eu 27 need to see where they're position in the world now is, particularly in light of what's happening with the Trump administration in the US. Britain has to be part of that, you know, it has to be part of our psychological makeup. We might wish them away at points in time, but it is a G7 country. It's still got the nodal points of finance, education, even sport, that's very significant. And for the Irish, given our geographical location and links, it is a very dominant customer. So for us, the future of Europe, you know, it's not a future after the UK. It's a future relationship with the world, but including the UK as our nearest G7 non-EU member state. Circling back to that point you were making about how we've all shifted to a much more service-based economy, the war on talent that you're all engaged in, that your members are engaged in. That reminds me of a point that I've heard made often, which is that, yes, there are some spoils potentially. Some people might move business out of the UK as a result of Brexit. But really, the real danger for them or the real opportunity for your members is the people who might never turn up in Britain or the investments that might never turn up in Britain. Because when they're digital and when they're service-based, 
they're a lot easier to shift than a, a car factory is, for example. Have you got sort of examples and thinking on the trend lines in that regard? You know, wh- what are you actually bringing to Ireland that once upon a time might have gone to the UK? I think you're right that, look, Ireland's economic fortunes, which have been spectacular, even uh, in a generation, and despite the financial crisis, because Ireland is back now, and one of the strongest performing economies, not just in Europe, but globally, uh, we've been highly correlated with the United Kingdom. The type of globalisation that the UK have experienced over the last 30 years has meant we've nearly been like a joint production. And when they attract, we've also similarly attracted very similar type of activity, be that medical technology, pharmaceutical technology. Britain leaving creates a problem for Ireland even on the globe when you're thinking about where to locate. You know, the, the two islands were beacons in the last number of years. So we're going to be disappointed if Britain were to be diminished. But we are starting to pick up some of that investment that wants to be in Europe, but also wants a common law legal system, Anglo-Saxon view of the world, English speaking and so on. So we're seeing quite a lot of investment coming into Ireland, really around more longer, more tangible type companies, medtech, aircraft leasing, biopharma, some tech companies. Not so much the financial services, which is one of the things that people obsess about in Mm -hmm. terms of Britain, because those other industries are actually immune to the passporting issue. Ireland remains a very good globalisation bet and would have done so even if Britain had stayed. And now we've got a little bit of a shorter advantage of being in the EU, having a lot of the characteristics of Britain. But you're right, the long-term future, if Britain is underperforming, I think will have spillover effects for Ireland ultimately. And one of the interesting trends that I noted is that you're now spending more in putting on an advocacy, a lobbying front here in Brussels than even a much larger organisation like the UK's CBI business lobby. Can you tell me a little bit about how your work here in Brussels has changed since Brexit? Is it is it just a scale thing or is it that you now need to advance and advocate for causes that you know you are able to take for granted before Brexit? I think you're right that the absence of having Britain in the institutions is going to be diminishing for Ireland and resources, and particularly at a nation-state level. However, because of the scale of the footprint in Ireland, which is disproportionately big, even in a European context, IBEC is reflective of that. And so IBEC is actually much bigger in absolute terms than most other European business organisations. So we would be bigger than our colleagues in the CBI. I would argue that that is probably a trend for European lobbying that people need to scale. And I would suggest that in time we will see more scaling of national horizontal type lobbying organisations just like IBEC. I believe IBEC are in the vanguard. We're in in the EU Transparency Register. We were on the record there at 1.3 million or so of spend in Brussels, but we're a 29 million turnover business. So it's not as if we're putting all that scale just into Brussels, but we are identifying other nodes like Paris with the OECD, obviously with the extent of US FDI in Ireland. We'd also canvas and lobby in the States. That'll increasingly become the trend as the Irish business footprint is becoming globalised. Now, when we think of Irish business, you're obviously very well known for your tax regime and the fact that it's a low tax country, but very successful as a result of that. How do the tech companies fit into your worldview? Are they integrated into what IBEC is and does, or is that kind of a parallel system sitting out there in the economy? No, the tech companies are very firmly embedded in both the Irish business community and within IBEC specifically. But the 
the changing nature of that has moved from being industrialized manufacturing of components into this modern world of intangible intellectual property and the difficulty in digitalization of being able to capture where the locus of activity occurs. So tech companies are very significant. However, indigenous Irish businesses as well have really scaled up in the last generation. By far our biggest uh, company would be CRH, which has mm -hmm. nearly 90,000 employees, nearly 60,000 of those in North America alone. Uh, Smurfa Kappa, combination of Dutch, Irish, paper manufacturing. Then in the food, we have the Kerry Group, uh, Glanbeer now, another kind of traditional milk co-op, which has become, you know, now an infant formula into sports nutrients, one of the biggest in the world. Sports You're the new New Zealand. Indeed. In fact, you know, we're much bigger scale than New Zealand as it happens. But my point is that if you look at it in a European context, by far the biggest consumer brand that people know from Ireland is Ryanair. So you have a huge amount of diversity in the sectors, biopharma, medtech is huge, Ireland's the second biggest medical technology hub. Stripe, the payments company that got a ginormous valuation these Indeed, days. Indeed, but you know, whilst they're, they're Irish in, in terms of the founders, you know, they're fundamentally a Silicon Valley company. I'm talking about the ones with huge substance in Ireland and they're a real disproportionate scale of business. And I think one of the challenges for Europe is that and probably even a greater challenge for the United States is how do you handle companies who don't have tangible assets that have these intangible intellectual properties? So, you know, 10 years ago, the Forbes top 10 would have oil companies, maybe three, four. Today, if they have one, it's as, as many. Increasingly, it's the Facebook, Googles, Amazons. And so Ireland's... And the Apples, don't forget. And Apple, and Apple, indeed. And so if you're looking at that kind of grouping, yes, it is a challenge to try to capture the taxation as Europe is attempting to do, but it's equally as big a challenge actually for the United States uh, to try to, you know, what they might think of their companies to try to actually put their arms around them and get the activity into the US. And frankly, this could be a tipping point for the United States. I mean, there's a lot of attention on President Trump. He's doing a lot of interesting things, but what he's doing is creating huge uncertainty. Some of that uncertainty can be seen as disruptive. But the uncertainty around the taxation, whilst it's going down at the moment and business can share that, nobody can be certain with the US tax system right now. And what global businesses need is certainty. And so who owns global businesses? Increasingly, their shareholders will not be US citizens. So I think we, we need to start to reflect on the world as it is, not as others might wish it to be. Now, on the question of Apple, one question I had there was, I think most people, even the critics, have moved past criticising Ireland for having a low tax rate. Like, it feels like a very old debate, even if some people disagree with it. But what the critics never tire of raising is the idea of these special tax deals and what a problem they are. How does that get dealt with by your membership? Because special deals being special deals, they're not available to, to everyone, they're not identical, they're not off the shelf. Is there ever tension amongst your members around that, or do you advocate for a single approach to modernising the tax system in Ireland? Very much the single approach, because the you know you need to split up the Apple tax case in Ireland. Apple have been in Ireland since nineteen eighty. They've gone through a few phases. They're going to the wall on probably on two occasions, and then suddenly to become the largest company in the world. So Ireland has travelled through there. The business community, though would be as annoyed as any other jurisdiction if they found that a, that a particular company had a tax deal. But you must distinguish about what we're observing today in a different type of regime. What is really, really a game changer is being a common law legal system. Because when you've got ambiguity, 
about intellectual property and becomes intangible. Codified legal systems are way behind having that interpretation and flexibility. And I think a lot of European countries should learn the lessons of what's happening in Ireland through the prism of today, not necessarily looking back at the past and the Apple tax judgment. That will find its own conclusion, but don't mix up the two. We're in a different paradigm now. Danny McCoy, thank you for joining us on EU Confidential. Thanks, Ryan. And it's time for the podcast panel. Welcome back, Alva Finn and Lena Rabarus. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Hi, Alva. So, messy discussion this week, like it's going to be at the European Council. Maybe you'll be hearing this after the EU Leaders' Summit is over. But amongst many difficult discussions, including how to handle Donald Trump, how to finish the Eurozone, how to deal with Brexit, we are going to be stuck with a very messy migration discussion. So I'm going to put it to you, Lena and Alva, that actually what happens around the table with the 27 people Thursday night isn't going to matter so much. I think that what is going to matter now for Angela Merkel's survival and Germany's policy surviving is can she get some bilateral agreements to calm down the conservative wing of her party? And what matters is, will Italy accept ships? Will Malta accept ships? And under what conditions? And I think, you know, in the lack of actual institutional agreement on what the policy should be, we're going to start to see some more bottom-up policy making. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I think she's already gone in saying it doesn't actually really matter what happens here. We need to talk about it. But it seems clear that as far as migration is concerned, people can't agree Europe is not prepared to take on its fair share of the burden of some of the things that are happening around the world, or it already thinks it has, which I think now, uh, obviously, Angela Merkel has reached that conclusion. I think it's very sad that now we're relying on bilateral agreements, and then also that we are relying on this idea that we will send migrants who come across the sea or from other routes to countries that actually can't deal with that amount of people. I've heard talk about Tunisia, about Albania, about Kosovo. Well, that's a really interesting point. Maybe the one thing the leaders will be agreeing on is the need to turn people away, that they need to create processing centres for refugees or other migrants, and that those processing centres need to be in the countries you mentioned, in Libya, Tunisia, etc. That's almost the one point of agreement, is send them back. But that is a massively expensive policy. Uh, It has worked in Australia in the sense of they have literally been able to turn boats back, but at a cost of around about a million euros per refugee in some situations. And with the sort of numbers you're talking about in Europe, the size of the coastline, the number of islands people can land on, the number of places they can leave from, the numbers don't really add up to Mm. say that that system would work here. Lena? It's exactly what what leads us to... No one is thinking for a long-term solution. These are very short-term solutions and unsustainable. They are not calculating the amount of uh, more future migrants that might happen. Yeah, if we went back to the numbers of two years ago, I mean, that is... Yes, certainly. But if we're talking about the centers and then uh, sending them away and making these uh, platforms and disembarking platforms, uh, still, again, it will be for a certain amount of people that they have estimated for the time being of these crises, which is not as bad as before. Now, another option is that why not to work with the local governments, with the countries that the migrants are coming from? 
and change the mechanism of assistance and aid there and finding a way to work with the civil societies, finding a way to put all these funding mechanisms to keep the people in their own land. Well, rather in, in than principle, the EU does want to do that, but yes. we're just not seeing a lot of action on the ground. Either there's not enough money or there are not enough relationships to, to put that policy into practice. I have seen that in my eyes, in, in my own country, the way they have given the assistance to to the refugees. Uh, so this is in Jordan, where a quarter of the population are refugees. Exactly. And on top of that, we have 1.4 million Syrian refugees. And the assistance had to come during four or five years into projects how could we solve this problem? I mean, how would we be able in five years uh, integrate the refugees, uh, find the projects, and then bit by bit, the EU will give the money to a country that has no natural resources and cannot close the doors in the refugees. This is happening in, in the Middle East, but imagine in Africa, which major natural disasters happen. The poverty is, is like high rocking, illness, sickness. So the only way, as much as we can speak here in Brussels and come up with these platforms and bilateral agreements and uh, negotiate these political wins between Italy and Brussels and Malta and Brussels, is still the solution is in the own land of the people. This is where they have to work. Yeah, I think you've actually hit the nail on the head of what they are trying to do because I imagine that some of some of the 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 money that is going into you know um, reinforcement of this this big European peace facility, I can imagine that some of that will be securitized. But yes, basically, actually, they want to invest in host countries. So basically, not even keeping them in their own country, but yes, a little bit of that. But also where they do end up in Africa, just keeping them there and making sure the host countries there can... But they've been doing that for a long time. Investing. Here's here's another problem, and I saw this in Australia, is that you can build those camps, you know, and in Australia, they effectively became desert prisons. And the policy in Australia was to keep them as far away from population centres and journalists as possible. So... We didn't get to see things like journalists on the Aquarius traveling around for 10 days showing the reality of the situation. In Australia, everything was very tightly controlled by the government and the conditions were pretty tough. Like you've seen situations where children were born in those camps Mm. and have in some cases lived there now for more than a decade. And that's in Australia where there are literally piles of money and high standards of governance. I cannot imagine you can replicate that with the number of people in Libya and the state of the government in Libya. Like, it, it's a very unrealistic proposition. And it kind of brings you to this point of the European Union holds itself up as a human rights defender. If they are literally paying for detention camps, there is no way they are going to provide the standard of basic care to refugees unless they funnel multiple billions of euro into them, as they would here. It's just basically paying countries that cannot afford to take these migrants and refugees in on the basis of conditionality, like we'll give you aid and putting pressure on them as well to say, if you don't take them, something else will happen in our other bilateral relations. So it's just a very sad place to to be, I think. We need to go more back to the source then. So I've got two questions there. Um, The first is around the fact that people smugglers are evil. So the question is, how can you break the people smuggling networks without necessarily punishing the people who are using them or victimized by them? You know, because there, there are nasty things happening amongst European governments now, but the people who traffic these people are, are the source of the problem. Uh, so how, how can we deal with that? Then 
Of course, the reason that people feel pushed into using people smugglers is they don't have legal pathways into Europe. The idea that you, as a poor person in a village who is under threat from a militia, under threat of female genital mutilation or some other civil war pressure in your country, that you would be able to get the documentation, to get the passports, to get on a plane, if indeed there are planes into Europe from where you live, it's a very unrealistic thing. And that pushes people into the arms of people smugglers who charge a lot more than a plane ticket to mm. Europe mm. and send people on journeys for three months to three years, wandering across deserts and, and facing who knows what in countries with very unstable governments, if any government at all. Yeah. So how do you smash the people smugglers and how do you give some kind of front door so that people feel less pressure to go through a back door? It's all about intelligence work. When they have some kind of a military cooperation and some uh, exchanging of, of, of intelligence, why not? They are not doing it for this. So they can find a way, put a strategy to work with the national governments and to fight these smugglers and put it's almost like a dream that they will put it because I'm sure some governments are happy to have these uh, smugglers and are supporting them. And there's one risk. Your points are very valid, but one of the risks is if you do it with the wrong governments, Mm -hmm. you are actually enabling and increasing the capability of non-democratic regimes that can use those new skills, use those resources to punish the very people that in theory you're trying to save. Case in point, Libya. Yeah, Mm. exactly, exactly. But what turned out of Libya with with the intervention, uh, when the EU and some uh, European countries intervened and they threw out the regime, it's really it was very undemocratic regime. But what did we have? What do we have now? It, was this the, the right? Actually, it mm. has become a land of uh, crime, smugglers, uh, name it. They can't find a solution. And so. all bad choices. But another point I would make, I remember working in the commission back in 2011, 2012, writing speeches for President Barroso about the Arab Spring. And I felt hopeful at the time, and some of the policies on paper were very good policies, the three M's, money, migration, and I forgot the other M, but anyway, the point was, there was supposed to be a lot going into supporting people to have a kind of Erasmus route into Europe, to be able to come and study into Europe, but to also have opportunities at home. Frankly, I have never seen the implementation of most of those policies. Weren't you an Erasmus Yes. Beneficer. Yeah. yeah. I, was the I think one. that it is a little bit before the Arab Spring. Yeah. It's well, a, it, thank they you, still Ryan. That, I'm that old, exactly. <laughs> thank you. But going back to the point of Ryan and the beginning of the Arab Spring, how hopeful everyone was, it still it came from Brussels. It still came from behind the desk. Nobody understands the textile, the tissue of the society in Libya. And nobody was expecting that there are so many surprises that will ch- just will, will uh, say like a revolution. And, and they thought that, oh, yeah, okay, we're going to have the perfect word afterward. It doesn't. It ha- the same in Iraq, the same in Yemen. No, it's uh, the same with uh, the migration quota uh, policy uh, overall. Yeah. Looks great on paper in Brussels, does not quite match the world as it is. And this is where I think the EU should be connecting more with the civil societies, with the local governments. They have heads of delegations everywhere. Maybe their missions should uh, should work harder on that and find realistic, not poetic, romantic programs that uh, the people are not looking for now. They just need to eat, to be safe, to have a house, to have a roof. Th- these are the basic necessities. And then we will talk about sending them to study in Europe or sending them to uh, to integrate and learn the European values. First, secure me, give me a, a safe life, and then we will see. Give me an economic mean. I, I think so far Europe is not being able to do it, and that's why I think we have these crises. 
Now we need to turn to a specific WTF as opposed to a general WTF moment. I think it's got to be Matteo Salvini, the Interior Minister of Italy. I propose him on the basis of calling uh, vaccines useless and sometimes dangerous. That is just flat out wrong when it, all of the science is considered. It is, it is His words are the dangerous words, in my opinion, because of the harm that they could spread if people took that advice. And then he was a bit of a, well, I don't even know what is the polite word that I could use on the podcast. He was a, an antagonistic individual in some of his tweets on the weekend too. He tweeted himself out on a boat and kind of went, ha ha, look behind me, no illegals on these boats. Of course it wasn't because it was a luxury boating situation in Tuscany. <laughs> so yes, don't think we could call it tone deaf because I think it was entirely pitch perfect for his audience, but it is kind of sad summary of where we're at now. Yeah, I think we are definitely, and also from the beginning of when we were talking about the migration crisis, populism is pushing a lot of European leaders to kind of right-wing stances as well. I think it's very dangerous. And when you look at who people are trying to appeal to, those people are normal people. They voted for more centre or liberal parties initially. And it just, you kind of wonder to yourself... He is definitely talking to the alt-right, but he's also talking to people who, you know, want to be... He's a fearmonger. That's exactly what you're talking about when you're saying vaccinations don't work. I mean, that's factually inaccurate. The beginning of vaccinations has basically improved survival of the human race immeasurably. So this idea that, like, oh, you don't know what you're taking... People sometimes want to be scared, I think. And I just hope that this move towards populism doesn't move a lot of of European leaders to positions that they will regret in the future. Yeah, I think we have learned a lot from the 1930s, so I don't suggest we end up in that territory, but it is sad to witness essentially the same tactics being deployed in a variety of different situations. So, yeah, well, I'm sorry we don't have any more hopeful conclusion on that front, but we have got a very happy note to end on because Alva... It was your birthday on Monday, so happy birthday. Thank happy you. Birthday. 32 years young. Yes, 32 <laughs> years young. So many years. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to any of you listening who experienced a birthday this week. Happy birthday to all of you who will have one next week as well. We are going to have positivity on this podcast, even if we can't have it in our politics. So thank you for joining us for this episode of EU Confidential. Please take a moment to rate, review, or subscribe to us wherever you found us. And of course, podcasting is a team effort. So a big thank you to Nicole Fallett, Antonio Fernandez, Wei Dong Lin, and Andrew Gray for making this episode possible. 